I will invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 42. We will step back into our ongoing study of Isaiah uh, after taking the week off last week with Pastor Jeff Anderson, who I know you appreciated. More than one person said that by the time they were done listening to Pastor Jeff, who is a kind of a high-powered guy and comes at you pretty quick and fast, they came, went away kind of tired. Man, I'm exhausted. Why? What just happened to me? But, but this is good. So back to Isaiah we go. And um, we're going to be looking at chapters 42, 43, and a good part of 44. And um, when, I want to say this as we get started here. Uh, as I was reading Gospel of Luke this week, uh, I, I was captured by a phrase in the opening uh, little paragraph as Dr. Luke begins to explain why he's writing the book. And there's a phrase he uses there where he says, I want you to have certainty about what you believe. He's explaining that he researched and looked things up and talked to people, uh, wanted to write a historically accurate document, and he said, I want you to have certainty. And that just captured me, that, that thought, because we live in a world of great uncertainty. I mean, about what do we have, certain, uh, have true certainty? The last several years have proven that to be kind of an illusion, and it seems to continue. About what do you have certainty And the text in front of us today, well, longer than some that we look at, and we will move quickly through, I I know, but but there 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 are elements of certainty here because the living God speaks. So sometimes people say, is there a word from the Lord? You find that show up in different stories of the Bible. Is there a word from the Lord? Well, yes, in fact, there is. The written word of God. The, the word from the Lord. And that shows up in what we're going to look at today. I hope that you will hear God's word and the certainty that is here provided. Why we can have certainty on anything is, is here explained. So I'm working on my voice today, struggling a bit with that. And you'll hear that, and I'm aware. Uh, so I'll move along quickly and um, try to keep track of that. And I'll invite you to pray with me, if you would, please. Our Father, how good that in this uncertain world we can open the Word of God and here meet with you, the living God, the God who is, not a figment of our imagination, not just some story from of old, but the God who is truly there, who evidences, oh God, you you evidence yourself in, in creation and in human history and indeed in our lives today. And I pray that as we deal with this portion of your Word that you'd give us great joy and clarity and help us as we move along very quickly, really. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as you come to Isaiah 42 and what follows, we, we come to a very poetic section. It's a section that, we're, 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 that lifts up the beauty and the honor and the power of God in, in just, just artistic and clear ways, layer upon layer, line upon line, the beauty of God. And you notice on your study sheet, if you pulled that out, as I hope you did, some elements of review, a paragraph about today's text. And in that little paragraph, I mention that God is going to be using a term in the chapters we're looking at and in what follows, the term servant, okay? And it's used in different ways. We're going to notice that in today's text and for some weeks ahead, that the term servant is applied at least in three different ways. And sometimes you don't know until you read the broader context, who is God speaking about here when he says servant? So sometimes that term is applied to the nation of Israel. 
Sometimes it is applied to the, the coming Messiah, of course, Jesus, who has now come. And sometimes it's referring to a pagan ruler, Cyrus the Great. You think, well, how in the world can a, a pagan ruler be a servant? I mean, he's not a, a God believer, God follower. How can he be a servant? Well, it's emphasizing something, as we'll see in these days ahead. It's emphasizing the fact that God can even work through a pagan ruler who does not acknowledge him. He is Lord of history, and even even someone who doesn't acknowledge him, in that sense, is serving the purpose of a sovereign God. So powerful stuff we get to look at. Great implications for our lives when we think about things that come our way that are difficult, and we wonder, does God see? Does he know? Well, he does see. He does know. He does know you and loves you. So today, I'm I'm just so excited about what we're going to see. I want you to quickly look at the headings and how we're going to break this down. Uh, Save me time in speaking and you time in understanding. So chapter 42, largely about God's servant, Messiah King, largely in that direction. And we'll read part of it and comment on that. Then on the next side of your page, God will redeem his broken servant people, So an emphasis on the nation of Israel as God's servant. And then into chapter 44, specifically God saying to the nation of Israel, my chosen people, I love you and I will not forget you. So we'll talk about that uh, very briefly as we get there. But to help us get going, I want to read the first nine verses of Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9, as we hear God's word. We read this. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. The coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I will tell you. Okay, we'll stop at that moment. Uh, in order to deal with a larger section, there'll be parts that I will read and parts that I will count on you to read as you get ready for meeting with your community group just because of the volume of material. But this chapter really, an emphasis on God's servant, the Messiah King who is to come. 
Now, if you look at the little bullet points there, I've mentioned the first already, the beautiful poetry and view of God that is here. And it's good for us to see these verses in their original context. Because sometimes in poor Bible study technique, we yank verses out, we forget the one originally addressed, and we say right away, we use these terms sometimes, I understand it, but it can go too far. I'm going to claim that verse. You ever said that? You ever heard it said, if you mean by that, I'm going to believe it, hold on to it? Okay, I suppose, good. But we want to be careful that by claiming something, we don't yank it out of its original context and make it say what it never said in the first place. So we can do that pretty easily when we pull verses out in isolation, and we really don't want to do that. We want to let God speak to us. So it's good for us as we read these chapters to see verses in their original context, not just on a poster somewhere, all right? I hope that makes sense to you. Now, as we read that section at the beginning of chapter 42, I think it quickly became apparent to us that the servant here is not the nation of Israel, as you see back in chapter 41, verses 8 and 9, but rather a person. And I also know that to be true. Are you ready? Because I read the rest of the book. It's in Matthew. And so I gave you the reference for that too. It's in Matthew 12, where in that telling of the story of Jesus, this specific text is used to refer right to Jesus. So you know that that's the one God had in mind when Isaiah 42 was written. God tells you that. Years later, I was talking about this Jesus, Messiah, Savior, who was to come. Now, in the unfolding of the book of Isaiah, he has already prepared us for a coming Savior. You'll remember back in chapter 9, I give you the references for these, and in chapter 11, you, you saw a reference to one who was to come. Uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders, the name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, I missed that one. Four, four descriptors of the one who's to come. And so Isaiah has been preparing us for this one all along. And so here, more information about him. And of course, I mentioned chapter 25. My goodness sakes, we, we read that a number of weeks ago. That great day, capital D, the day, the day, the day that Isaiah speaks of over and over again, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, New Testament, picks up that same phraseology, day of the Lord, God's work in restoring and rebuilding and in judging. So I mentioned chapter 25. Oh my goodness sakes, I love that text. He will swallow up death forever. It took us way into the future of God's future grace. He will swallow up death forever. Now, as I read uh, this chapter, uh, the first part of it, uh, look again with me at verse 7. There's a theme I want you to see. Of course, in these descriptors, line upon line, of the work of Messiah, you see here in verse 7, that he will be one who opens the eyes that are blind. And there are twin phrases that are used a lot in this section of Isaiah, that God will open eyes that are blind and ears that are deaf. And that's also applied to the nation of Israel at this point, further on in chapter 42. Your people, your eyes work, but you don't really see. And your ears work, but you're not really hearing me. And, and God speaks of his people that way, his na- the nation of Israel, God's chosen ones. He's saying, here you are. I formed you. I created you. I, I called you by, by your name. I called you by my name. And you don't see me. And you don't hear me when I speak. It's a tragedy unfolding. But it's striking because when you think about the work of Messiah Jesus, when he walked on earth, think of the miracles that he did. 
how over and over again, he healed the blind and those who were deaf. And he wasn't just doing that to be nice, though that's pretty nice. But it was intended that those who would see him do that would say, wait a minute, giving sight to the blind, restoring the hearing to the deaf, that's in Isaiah. And it's a descriptor of Messiah Jesus. Is that him? See, so the works of Jesus, again, sometimes people think of this, Jesus went around, and yes, indeed, a taste of the kingdom to come, I get it. However, Jesus was also looking back to the prophecy and saying, do you see who's here among you? I'm doing what the prophet Isaiah told you I would do, and here I am. It was a reason for people to believe in him. So we don't want to miss that. You'll hear that, opening the eyes that are blind, and ears that are deaf. You'll see that repeated in the text. Excuse me a moment. Wow. All right, we'll keep that going. So Isaiah 42 then, Messiah will come. Messiah's Savior, the servant, King. Um, Down in verse 18, just to call this out before I move on to the next section quickly. Here it is where it's describing God's people. Hear you deaf, look you blind. Who is blind but my servant? You say, wait a minute. I thought we were talking Messiah. Is he blind? No. Keep reading. My messenger, okay, that's the nation of Israel. Again, verse 22, it's identified. This is a people plundered and looted. He's shifted the term servant to refer in that section to the nation of Israel. So you have to kind of pay attention as you read to think who is being spoken of here. Jacob, of course, verse 24. You see the descriptors that make you say, oh, yes, here it is, the servant nation who is blind and who is deaf. Very important that we see the difference. So 24, or 42 rather, is a promise. It's a chapter of promise. I'm telling you, a savior's coming. Here's what he will do. And I, in, in verse, um, verse three, that, that familiar phrase, it's quoted in Matthew 12 as well. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He'll bring forth justice. That's, that's describing the care of Jesus for people like you and me. A, a candle that's just more smoke than light. Uh, a, something that's supposed to be a campfire and it's not giving any heat. Rather than come along and squashing it and saying, you're pretty lousy at that. No, Messiah will come along. Maybe that's you. Not, not really burning at full strength. And rather than getting smacked by God, no, Messiah comes along and rather than squashing you, he, he assists you and cares for you. It's a verse of compassion. You and I are that smoldering wick and that bruised reed. That's us. And Messiah, Savior, comes along in comfort to care for his people. So we want to notice those things. A great look ahead to what Jesus is like. Now, chapter 43 then shifts more to an emphasis on God's chosen people, his servant people. And here I want to read verses 1 to 13, all right? As we see familiar words, I think, should be familiar to many of you, but spoken to a particular people as described in verse 1, all right? So we read God's word. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. 
and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right. And let them hear and say, it is true. You are my witnesses, says the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, for you are my witnesses, says the Lord, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Okay, we'll stop at that point, though we'll make reference to some other things in that chapter in a moment. So, Moving then from chapter 2, a look at the servant Messiah King. Here, God's broken servant people. This is a striking chapter because, as you know from our study of Isaiah so far, the people of Israel are about to go into captivity. They haven't gone yet, but they're going to. But here God, before he sends them out for 70 years to Babylon, is already saying to them, in that time of dispersion, in that time of judgment, I will be with you. I will walk with you. I'll, be, I'll care for you. And when the water's overwhelming, you think you're going down, when you think you can't take any more, God says, I will still be with you even then, and I will regather you when the time is right. I will not lose track of you. I think that's a, this is a powerful statement about God's care for the nation of Israel. It's a powerful statement about, about God's care for you and for me. Because as we go through our lives, similarly to what Israel goes through, there are times we think, I am going under. How many of you have loved verses 2 and 3? Many of you have got those verses memorized because they remind you that whatever you're going through, God cares for you, walks with you, and will not forget you. Right when you think you're going to drown, you're reminded again God has you in his hands. Now, I am one of those who believes uh, that, that this is speaking of the nation of Israel. And there are those who, as they study the book of Isaiah, for example, we've talked about this before, but I mention it again because it's kind of a big deal in contemporary theology, who would say here, well, Israel and so on, that's just speaking of, you know, really the church who replaces Israel. Well, I take issue with that wrong. I don't hold that view. I believe that unless we're told otherwise, when it speaks of Israel, it's kind of speaking of Israel, Application to us? Yes, certainly. But specifically, I believe this is like a letter written to Israel. Now, you can learn from somebody else's mail about what God is like, but let's not think that in reading somebody else's mail, it's talking about you first. 
So I think this is talking about Israel as a nation first. That's especially important as you get to chapter 44. And I've mentioned a couple of books before. I brought them again because I like bringing books around. But if you, are, if you are into scholarly studies on what I just talked about, that is the relationship of the church to Israel, and in particular, what is sometimes called supersessionism, or does the church supersede, take the place of Israel? There are books written on this, some that I would recommend. That, uh, this one, Has the Church Replaced Israel? Dr. Michael Vlock. It is a scholarly work. If you read it before bed, promise you, you will go to sleep. It is heavy lifting, church fathers down through history, a lot of scholarly work that you, he's, he's giving an apologetic for understanding that the church hasn't replaced Israel, okay? So if you wonder, is anybody talking about that? I've read some scholarly works on the other side. Well, you should include this one. Likewise, sorry, uh, this one called Forsaking Israel. This is written by the faculty of the Shepherd's Theological Seminary back in Cary, North Carolina. A whole number of theologians contribute to this. A forward is by Urban Lutzer. And um, let's see here. Bookman, Davies, Sigler, Burgraff, and Pettigrew. I think those are the guys who did most of this. Forsaking Israel, how it happened, and why it matters. So if, you, if you're looking for a more a scholarly treatment of that, topic that I mentioned in brief. Uh, there you go. You should, you should read those books. So I read this and I think of God's care for Israel as they're heading into judgment, heading away, and God calls them here blind and deaf to God's voice. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that there would be people to whom God had sent prophets and priests and kings, and yet at this moment in their lives, their ears are turned off to God and they don't see him anymore. What a tragedy. What a tragedy it would be for you, for any of us online listening later, to be so close, so close, and yet have ears that don't hear the word of God and the prompting of the Spirit to trust Christ. What a tragedy that would be on a great and final day for you to find out in that day, man, I never trust, I never believed Christ. I didn't. I was so close. Well, they're so close And here God assures them of his loving care. Now, a couple of things under bullet points here I want to point out in particular. I would want to point you to verse 7 and then over to verse 21 that we didn't read. Both of those are expressions of God's purpose for his people, God's purpose in creating them. So in verse 7... Again, I think he's speaking specifically to the nation of Israel, though broad application. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. And verse 21, the people whom I formed for myself, that they may declare my praise. If I may go, first of all, to the nation of Israel, which, I, again, I think is the, the point of this chapter, God created the nation of Israel to bless them, not just so that they would sit there in a holy huddle and be blessed, but rather that they would be a blessing to the whole world. I mentioned here a second bullet point, echoing strains of the Abrahamic covenant. Yes, indeed, all the way through this whole section, the Abrahamic covenant uh, undergirds all of it. God called Abraham, go to a land that I'll show you and make of you a great nation. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He gave a blessing to Abraham, land, descendants, and blessing, but not just blessing to keep it, 
but blessing to give it, to be a blessing to the whole world. Therefore, he would say, I created you for my glory, and I created you uh, that you may declare my praise. Verse 21, the nation of Israel was God's special people, not as excluding everybody else, but as a witness to everybody else. That's what they were supposed to do, be witnesses to the nations. You find the nations referenced throughout this whole uh, section we're looking at. Verse um, 9 is one example of that. The peoples, the coastlands, the people of the sea, those are all expressions of the nations of the world. And God's intent that the nation of Israel would, would reflect his glory to the nations. See, you are my witnesses. Now you see that, of course, in verse 10, and you see it, Oh, my goodness sakes, I read it all over the place. It's here numerous times. You're going to see it again in chapter 44. You're my witnesses. You're my witnesses, which, of course, is what the nation of Israel was supposed to be. You'll remember uh, on the Mount of Olives, as Jesus was about to leave, ascend to heaven, Acts chapter 1, what did he say to his Jewish disciples? What did he say? Uh, you, are, you shall be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You shall be my witnesses, in a sense, quoting the book of Isaiah and repurposing it to say, now Messiah, Savior has come, died on the cross, risen from the dead. Be my witnesses. So he's reinforcing Old Testament literature. God will redeem. God will redeem. Now, I mentioned verse 13 because a couple weeks ago, two, three, I forget what it was, I was sharing with you a number of texts that point to the sovereign hand of God throughout history. Big, that's a really big deal. It's a big deal to be true to the text, to be true to what God is like, and it's a big deal so that you can live with certainty, as I mentioned at the beginning, that God is on the throne, that he can do, and no one can undo it. All right? That's verse 13. Henceforth, God says, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? God says of himself. Sovereign statement. Sovereign God. And we talked about that. If you want to think further about that, I gave some material, again, a couple weeks ago. But verse 13 would quickly be added to that study. The sovereign hand of God, fully trustworthy. Now, you come down to verses 18, 19. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. And he goes on about that, verse chapter, or verse 20, to rivers in the desert again. Um, this is, this is, reminds us, of course, of the song. Some of you know, um, God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He will make a way. Guess where that came from? No, really, the songwriter didn't just make that up. They read their Bibles and made a song out of it. Isn't that fun? Uh, You might not have noticed. Uh, When you heard the song, you just went, man, that was great. Um, Ideally, you would say, "Uh uh-huh, that's from Isaiah 43. God will make a way where there seems to be no way. He works in ways we cannot see. He'll make a way for me. I love that song, by the way. It's a good song of comfort and care that God makes a way in the desert. And sometimes we walk there as his people were doing at the time. I'm going to move right into chapter 44, all right? Just for a few moments, I want to read verses 1 through, one through uh, let's see here, where am I going? 1 through 8 here, verses 1 through 8, and hear the emphasis of God, the certainty he gives to his people and his plan for them. God will not forget Israel, I'm saying. 
his chosen people. So 44, one through eight. And we read, but now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I'll pour my spirit upon your offspring. Yes, indeed, think book of Acts. My blessing on your descendants, Abrahamic covenant. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the, God, by the name of Israel. Wow. So a future turning seems to be in place here. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? For you are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. You'll hear that language a lot in the chapters to come. Now, I want to press on just a couple of things in the remaining moments that we have. In verse 7, this is like God throwing down a gauntlet, okay? He, he, is, he is about to introduce a section here on idols. We've been there before in the book of Isaiah, the folly of trusting anybody other than God, anything. So in verse 7, he says, it's like a gauntlet, let, let them declare what is to happen and what, what is to come and what will happen. Somebody, somebody out there, False gods among you. Would you raise your hand and tell me what tomorrow holds? Anybody at all? No, I don't see that hand because false gods can't lift their hands. Uh, that's what the next whole section's about. He looks at an ironsmith making a false god or a woodworker making a false god. And he says, can you believe it? People bow down before inanimate objects. Now, we quickly, of course, in today's world, say here in America, we would never do that. I mean, come on. Um, we don't bow down before wooden things or metal things. Uh, other people in the world do that. They're foolish. Well, guess what? We worship other things. We do. May not be objects of metal or wood, but when we trust our portfolios or our, our achievements or our, our brains or our track record, our goodness, we trust our general good. I'm a pretty good person, right? We would say, raise your hand. Don't do it. If you think you're pretty good, huh? Wow, we trust all kinds of things to have favor with God, to, to for the future, for security in the future. What is your security for the future? What are you trusting that tomorrow it'll be okay? How quickly those things that you trust can be taken away. Everything I just said, your physical health, right? Your financial well-being, the stuff you own, how quickly it can go away. We live here in America, we think, yeah, yeah, you're talking about other countries. Not necessarily. One phone call from your doctor can change your world. How quickly what you trust can go away. And so here, false gods pointed out to be foolish, and God gives a litmus test, in a sense, in verses 7 and 8. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Anybody know? No, God says, I do. I know the future. Now, I want to say a couple things. In the section next week, uh, God is going to call out a pagan ruler by the name of Cyrus. 
hasn't been born yet. Some people read this chapter, this part of the book, and say, obviously, this part of Isaiah was written later so that he could get those names out of the newspaper. Because after all, there's no way you could know that. Unless there is a God in heaven who knows the future, which I think is the point in verses 7 and 8. Anybody else know the future? God says, I do. Let me tell you some of it. There's going to be this guy. He's going to be on a big horse. His name's going to be Cyrus. He's going to run over you all. Now you wonder, why didn't they just put that in the newspaper? Wait, wait, put it where? You're right. It wasn't there. They couldn't put it on the internet. So Cyrus could come in a whole other kingdom. They'd never read this. So it wasn't like a people, you know, Cyrus's mom and dad said, wow, guy's going to be a great warrior. Let's name him Cyrus. They hadn't read this. But God in another country, land of Israel, he's saying, guess what? This is what's going to happen. You watch. Okay, your descendants watch. There's going to be a king, a ruler, a general, by the name of Cyrus. He's going to come in on a big horse. Just wait. God is declaring the future. Now, let me say this about the future, and then I'm about done, all right? <clears throat> Predictive prophecy. Please get this. Some people, especially nowadays, everybody seems to want to study the book of Revelation. What's it all about? What happens next, people say? What happens next? Some people think that the point of God giving prophecy is so that we would all get it on a chart. We love charts, don't we? I have it all figured out. That's the way it is. Amen. Thus says the Lord. And may I just say, in the Bible, over and over again, that isn't the purpose of prophecy, so that you'd figure it all out. Sorry, really sorry. Rather, in the Bible, over and over again, the purpose of prophecy is given so that when it happens, you will say, God knew it the whole time. So in other words, its main purpose is to give testimony to the power and wisdom of God, not, not so that you would have it all figured out. Does that make sense? I know that's hard for some of us to hear who were raised with bed sheets hung in the front with lines and arrows. I was too. It was all figured out. We knew everything. And and I mean, there it is. That's the future. Here to the end. It was clear. Obviously. Why didn't you figure that out? Everybody should know this. Well, you know what? Maybe the lines are drawn correctly. Maybe they're not. But the main purpose is to bring glory and praise to God. Chapter 43, verse 21 to point praise to him. That's the point of that verse for the nation of Israel. The people I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. When God brings human history to pass and you see his handiwork, you will say, look, he knew it the whole time. Okay, more can be said on that. I just wanted to poke you with that this morning. Rattle your cage and um, take down the bed sheet. Um, But my closing comment here, very bottom of the page, how would you complete this sentence? My hope is built on, okay, I know, right away you go with the song, didn't you? You're cheating, you're cheating. Um, Some people, a generation before, would say my hope is built on nothing less than Schofield Notes and Scripture Press. I know, that's, that's, that's the older version from 100 years ago or whatever it was. But what do you, not what do you say you trust? What do you really trust? When you look to the future, year, five years, where's your confidence? And if your confidence is mainly in the stuff that's listed there, I've prepared well, so I should be fine. You know what? I hope you did. But I hope most of all you know that your life is in God's hands. And I hope your trust is in him, come what may. I hope, I ho- hope that he is your confidence for the future.
All right, that's as far as I'm about to go today. I would love to have you stand, and let's, let's pray together as we wrap up our time here. <clears throat> Father, how we thank you for the morning, for all the parts of it, time we could sing praises to you, the, the guests that we were able to hear from, and, and, and be encouraged about your work and your care, and for our time in your word. Father, thank you for all this. Would you bless each person here today, most of all, not just with an easy life, maybe even an easy week, but bless us with a hunger for you and a willingness to trust you whatever comes our way, even this week. We honor your name, Lord Jesus, as we pray together. Amen. God bless you as you go.